sorrow and collectible the cream, the candy man. The Candyman can. What better time to conjure up the Candyman than now as we're heading headlong into what can only be described as candy season. The bags of Halloween candy, followed by chocolate turkeys, chocolate gifts, and the Hanukkah chocolates. Endless Christmas candy all portend to a season of secret consumption by adults, a watchful eye on kids and endless candy guilt. Plus, of course, the requisite articles about how sugar is more addictive than cocaine and how seemingly every disease studied by the CDC is amplified by sugar. We're going to enter this complicated and magical world of candy today with my guest, Samira Kawash. She has a Ph.D. in literary studies from Duke. She's a professor emerita at Rutgers. She's the founder of the website CandyProfessor.com, and she joins us to talk about candy century of panic and pleasure. Samira, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. Sometimes it seems like we're fighting the same kind of war on candy that we're fighting on illicit drugs. <laughs> it's true. You know, oftentimes you hear candy referred to in these drug terms. Like, you know, I was at a pinata party one time, and the pinata breaks open, the kids die for it, and the dad next to me says, crack for kids. <laughs> How did candy get such a bad reputation? Well, you know, I think one of the things that is fascinating to me, and you, you played that fantastic song at the beginning about the candy man, and that song is all about how the candy man is bringing us joy and pleasure and fun and deliciousness. And as I was listening to the song, I couldn't help think of the, um, the other image of the candy man, like from the movie Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. There's the, the, the child snatcher, and the child snatcher comes with the lure of candy to capture the children and spirit them away to a dark and dangerous place. And, you know, candy in our culture is extraordinarily ambivalent. That's what I really try to focus on in my book, this idea of panic and pleasure, both at the same time. So I think, you know, whenever we talk about, you know, does candy have a bad reputation or a good reputation, one of the tricks of candy is it's always both. So, you know, I think that's, that's kind of what makes it really interesting and really fun to sort of delve down and say, yeah, well, obviously candy tastes good, but what about the other side of candy? What about that dark side? Where does it come from? But candy we think of initially as something so innocent and so childlike and not necessarily something that has become exactly as you say, as polarizing a force as it has. Yeah, well, one of the things I was so interested in learning as I did my research was just going back to where do these... Where do these ideas about candy as kind of dangerous and threatening, where do they come from? And I went back to the late 19th century when there's a huge transformation in the ways that candy is manufactured and the ways that candy is eaten. Right around 1880s, sugar prices fall and machine technologies emerge that make it possible to produce a lot of candy very cheaply. And all of a sudden, people are surrounded by candy everywhere, you know, little carts of candy, little shops of candy, and children with their pennies going out to to buy that candy. And it provoked a lot of very ambivalent feelings among Americans at the turn of the century. Because on the one hand, clearly this was something that people really loved and they loved to get more of. But this candy was candy from factories. It was artificially colored. It was it wasn't, you know, it wasn't natural food. And children seemed to be eating a lot of it. And there were quite a lot of reformers that looked at that candy and saw sort of the worst dangers of industrialism 
addiction. They accused candy makers of contaminating their candies with grease and with shellac and with iron shavings and with shoe scrapings. And I mean, sort of the worst kind of filth of the industrial factory that was making its way into the candy and thereby contaminating those precious, innocent children that were eating the candy. So I think a lot of the early anxiety came from the origins of candy in the factory. It was really the first artificial food, the first kind of food that was con completely conjured um, through chemistry and engineering as opposed to something that you could sort of, sort of make in your own home through, you know, obvious processes. It does seem that at every stage from that to the kind of thing you were talking about with Chitty Chitty Bang Bang to even the image of Lolita and the lollipop, that the idea of seduction of children and candy are always used together in some ways. Yeah, I think that, you know, some of it is about the, the appearance of candy and the, the, perce the, the perception that there's an underlying danger. And I think that the idea that children are innocent, they can't really see beyond the appearances, they don't know to look past the surface and, and discover what kind of dangers are lurking underneath. So candy becomes kind of a metaphor for the way in which we are seduced all the time by those shiny appearances of things, you know, that we can buy. That, that, that expression, candy from strangers, you know, mm -hmm. the idea is the child is lured by the candy from a stranger because the child is just only seeing the candy and not seeing the danger of the stranger. And I, I hear that expression and think about the ways that even we as adults are confronted all the time with candy from strangers. I mean, you go to the grocery store and there's all those shiny packages and all those pretty boxes. You know, what's inside? Is it really good for you? I think that same kind of worry about what's underlying the shiny surface um, that kind of animates a lot of our ambivalence about manufactured products. Was there a period, is there a period that you could look at as kind of the golden age of candy? Americans were crazy for candy. As that amount of candy grew and the price went down, Americans gobbled it up. Now, there weren't other things. I mean, there wasn't a lot of other kinds of junk food. So if you wanted something treaty, candy was really it. And after the First World War, candy just exploded. That period between the First and Second World War has been called the golden age of the candy bar in particular. And the candy bar especially inaugurated a whole new way of eating. In that period, it's, it's so fun to go back and look at the ways people talk about candy then because it was like there were thousands of new candy bars on the market every year and they had the you know, crazy names like um, Snurkles and Patakins and Fat Emma and Hot Liza and Big Dick and The Shake and I mean just any name you could imagine was a candy bar and people gobbled them up because they kind of fit in with a new way of living that was emerging in the early 20th century. You know, people are moving more, they're moving more fast, things are more streamlined, there's more idea of being energetic and on the go, and candy was right there as food for energy. People really saw candy as a compact um, and economical way of fueling their bodies and keeping on the go. And that was one of the main themes of candy marketing in the first part of the century was candy is good food for energy. Candy is good food to keep you going. And when was the leap to make candy something that was associated with children? The idea of the candy store, the idea of the kid going into the candy store and picking out something. Yeah, well, I, you know, even before there was a lot of candy around, there was certainly an idea, if you go back to even early 1800s, um, ideas about feeding children, but children liked sweets, and, and they would get, you know, in their Christmas stocking, that kind of sugar plums dancing in their heads idea that, you know, Christmas was a time when you might get some little morsels of precious candy. Um, 
So when candy becomes more widely available and cheaper, there's a certain, you know, there's always a category of candy that's thought of as children's candy, and that's like the penny candies, the licorices, the gumdrops, the candy corn, the jelly beans. This was, you know, children's candy made cheaply for children's pennies, and children really had a lot of independence in those days that it wasn't uncommon for, you know, a five-year-old to toddle on down to the candy shop with a fistful of of pennies and, and spend the afternoon picking out which colors of gumdrops he wanted to have. Um, of course, there was also a, a, a much bigger part of the candy market was the adult candy market. And the, the, the stereotype of the candy eater in the 19th century was kind of the, the lady of leisure, you know, eating chocolate creams and an idea of sort of luxury and decadence associated with candy eating. But in the 20th century, it becomes associated a lot more with energy and strength and power. And the quintessential candy bar eater was actually the man. You know, candy bars were rugged and masculine, and they were sort of fit for men to, you know, put into their activities. And the biggest candy eaters in the early 20th century were men in the military. Um, the U.S. military provisioned the troops with huge quantities of candy because they, it was compact energy for, you know, feeding the troops and also because it was good for morale. As the candy industry said in one of their slogans, remember, everybody likes candy. And it really was not just the children. The children were the smallest part of the market and not profitable. Really, candy manufacturers wanted to sell candy to grown-ups because that's where the money was. And you even tell the story about the way that Tootsie Rolls played a, a small role in the Korean War. Oh, my goodness. Well, Tootsie Rolls have a long history of military use because, you know, you think of the Tootsie Roll and it is tough and indestructible. What better sort of candy to stick in the pocket of a soldier in, you know, climates hot and cold? The Tootsie Roll, the Tootsie Roll is there. It's an incredibly sturdy sort of candy. And it's chocolate flavored, too. And the fact is that chocolate doesn't travel well. So chocolate wasn't a very good choice for soldiers on the go. But the Tootsie Roll was a good substitute. So from World War One, the Tootsie Roll was, had been a favorite um, for military uses. The, the, it, there's a funny story from the Korean War. One of the um, one of the battalions was behind enemy lines, and they were running low on ammunition. And uh, so they sent a, a cable to their supplier, and it was in code. And their code for bullets was Tootsie Rolls. So they said, "Send us Tootsie Rolls. We're running out of Tootsie Rolls." And what arrived but two cases of Tootsie Rolls. So. They weren't very well served there, but it's funny to think of that, you know, the idea that, you know, you could call a bullet a Tootsie Roll. Um, I remember when I was a kid, it was all of the Tootsie Rolls that were left at the bottom of the Halloween bucket. They they sort of weren't so much the favorite, and I think it, it has something to do with that tough texture and sturdiness, um, candy bullets, as you might say. As we became more protective of children in the mid to later 1950s, suddenly candy took on a whole different meaning as far as kids were concerned. Talk about that. Well, I think that the ways that children ate candy and the ways that they got candy started to change uh, in the 50s and 60s. Um, candy was much more likely to be sold at the grocery store in family-sized packages than, um, than in the period before the war, and it was more likely that... Whoever was doing the shopping, which is typically the mother in that era, would be buying packages of candy at the store to bring home and give to her children. And in the 50s and 60s, there really wasn't a sense that it was bad for children to have candy, but there was a sense that it was the family that would provide the candy for children. Children were becoming more sheltered, were having less freedom to roam around than they'd had before the war, and candy was sort of increasingly something that was under the control of parents. And it was sort of the combination of maybe 
making your children happy, but also being responsible to shelter them and to keep them safe. So candy was a good thing, but really candy at home and candy from, from mom and dad. But, you know, that being said, I grew up in, in the 60s and early 70s, and I, I would still take my bicycle down to, uh, you know, to the ice cream store where there was a nice display of candy, and, and if I had a little bit of allowance in my pocket, I might get some. Uh, although I remember at a certain period in growing up, my mother started saying we could only have candy on Sundays, and we would go for Sunday candy every Sunday instead of whenever we felt like it. So uh, I think that was just part of a more general trend toward um, controlling more when our children eat certain foods and how much of those foods they're going to Eat. There's this other recurring theme, which we've alluded to, that seems to come up over and over again about whether or not kids have the right to their own pleasures, their own indulgences. Well, this, I think, is a theme that emerges very early in the story of candy, that one of the, one of the ways in which, um, one of the ways in which reformers seemed to object to children eating candy and to talk about candy as potentially dangerous and potentially poisonous did have to do with the fact that candy was something that children controlled for themselves, that, you know, children were going out, they were buying their own candy, they were making their own decisions about what they wanted and how they were going to eat it and how they were going to enjoy it. And there does seem to be this kind of worry that this is not a good thing, that somehow, I mean, a lot of the early reformers talked about candy eating leading to other kinds of vices. It would lead to gambling. It would lead to smoking. It would lead to drinking. It would lead to sexual activity. That somehow candy, for many reformers, was just the tip of the iceberg in terms of children and vice. And that if you wanted to keep your children safe from gambling, smoking, drinking, and sex, you really needed to keep them safe from candy, too. Now, candy, it's really hard for me to see candy in the same category of moral danger as all these other things, but I think it has something to do with that autonomous pleasure, the way that children could choose their own things, they were on their own, they were making their own decisions, and who knows what they're going to do once they're on their own. I think there's that kind of sense that we want to keep them safe and control what they're doing. And from a health perspective, the first area where candy came under fire, probably more than any other initially, was the idea that it was somehow going to rot your teeth and it was really bad for you. And dentists were proselytizing against candy. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not a, a, a biologist by training, um, but I, I worked very hard to try to come to terms with understanding how, um, how dentists and, you know, dental researchers thought about the effects of candy over the decades. And there really have been some very dramatic shifts, although it has been a constant that candy has been held responsible for tooth decay. I mean, the idea that candy rots your teeth goes back to the 19th century, even though there have been different theories about how it is that candy might be rotting your teeth. So to me, it seems like the idea that candy rots your teeth comes first, and then there's a kind of scramble on the part of researchers to figure out how that must be true. And even when there's research that suggests completely other things, that kind of gets pushed aside because we would rather hear about how candy rots our teeth. Um, So, I I mean, especially today, we're um, learning about the complexities of the kinds of bacteria that live in your mouth, the role of genetics, the possibility that those bacteria that cause cavities might be contagious in some way. Um, This is quite a far away from candy, and candy might, you know, provide some nutrients to bacteria that contribute to tooth decay, but there's lots of people that eat lots of candy that never have a rotten tooth, and there's some people who eat no candy who have all kinds of cavities. So, you know, there's, there's no clear correlation. There's no sort of direct line from candy to tooth decay, except in our imagination, where it's quite clear that, you know, don't eat that candy, it rots your teeth. 
Today, of course, it has gotten caught up in the much larger public health discussion about sugar and cereal and candy, and it all gets lumped together to the point where giving these things to children is, is in the view of many, tantamount to child abuse. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that one of the defenses that the candy industry has always brought is that candy is not all sugar. In fact, you know, the, the sort of amount of sugar in candy is about half. And then so candy is half other things, chocolate and milk and, and you know, nuts and all kinds of other stuff. And also that the sugar in candy is only a small portion of the total added sugar in the American diet. And today it's between about 6 and 8%. So we're eating lots of sugar added to our food, but... All but about 6 or 8% of it is coming from stuff other than candy. What is it about candy? Well, candy is obvious. I mean, you look at candy and you see sugar. That's all it seems to be. And unlike the other places that sugar is hiding in our diet, candy doesn't really have anything else going for it. I mean, it's meant to be sweet. It's meant to be a treat. And so it's easy to point to that and say that's really where the problem lies. Uh, in fact, you know, it's, it's really um, the, the, the sort of overall profile of our, of our highly processed food diet that brings in all of these, um, you know, secret fats and secret sugars that are in addition to whatever the, you know, the vegetables and the meats and the, and the milks that we might be eating otherwise, those kind of simple basic foods. The other aspect that is relatively new is the degree to which we blame sugar and, and specifically candy with causing hyperactivity in kids and impacting them in school and this, this effort to lump candy and soft drinks together and to, to ban them as much as possible. Well, I think that, it, you know, it seems sensible that the quantities of um, candy and liquid candy, as soda is sometimes called, um, you know, we might want to pay attention to the portion of that in our diet, and especially where sodas have done such a successful job of marketing themselves as, you know, refreshment and, and, and not food. And so, you know, it's taken a really a huge public health effort to get people to even start noticing that sodas were, you know, as some reformers have called them, liquid candy. Um, but I think, I think that also the ideas about sugar, um, you know, sugar, sugar's fortunes have, have risen and fallen over the last um, century. And this, is, this was something that was really interesting to me in learning about the history of candy, that, you know, in the first part of the century, people saw sugar as a very positive and beneficial uh, part of food, that, that uh, experts thought that it was perfectly fine to eat up to a quarter pound of sugar a week added to your food, that sugar was a source of energy, that sugar was easily digested, and that made it, you know, a good kind of food, so it wouldn't tax your digestive system. So the, the ideas of sugar 100 years ago, there wasn't anything particularly um, harmful perceived about it. Things changed dramatically in the 70s when there was a rise of what some people have called sugar phobia and a new idea that sugar was particularly toxic and had particularly harmful effects um, to our systems. There was another idea out there that was a kind of fat phobia, that it was in fact fat that was causing all of these chronic diseases and dangers to our system. And there's been a kind of struggle between, you know, what is the worst thing that we're eating? Is it the sugar? Is it the fat? Is it the sugar? Is it the fat? Um, to me, I, I think that choosing which nutrient you're going to demonize, whether it's sugar or fat or salt or whatever else, um, I think isolating those ingredients and nutrients from their larger context um, is <laughs> we lose the big picture, and I think it's the big picture that's the most important thing. You know, processed foods 
market themselves as low fat or low sugar or, you know, whatever that thing is we're looking for that's going to make it better for us. But it's still processed food. It's still, you know, manufactured food. And I think if we go back to less processed foods that are less made out of, you know, the combinations of engineered ingredients. We don't have to worry so much about which particular nutrients are good or bad. And I think having a sensible relationship to sugary things like sodas and candies in relationship to a larger diet that's made up of wholesome good foods, um, I think we can we can sort of have it all that way. Talk a little bit about the 1% in the candy world, the high-end chocolate business. The, originally, it was things like C's candy, and now it has is, is gotten to be places that have far, far more expensive candy. Well, I think that expensive candy is a good signal to us that we can have, you know, delicious, high-quality, enjoyable candies. And when something costs $30 a pound, you're not likely to gobble the whole thing up in an <laughs> afternoon and, and uh, think of it as a snack the way we do with, you know, a packet of king, a king-size packet of M&Ms or something like that. Um, I think it's really exciting that there are these new, especially these small kind of artisanal candy makers that are experimenting with using, um, you know, old-fashioned kind of candy recipes, but using really high-quality ingredients and creating, you know, there's one candy maker here in, in New York that has created sort of a high-end Snickers bar. You know, it's like the idea of a Snickers bar, but all, you know, like high-quality cream and the best peanuts and handmade in small batches. And, oh, boy, that's an incredible thing, but it costs $8. So I see it as a treat because it's expensive instead of, you know, as a kind of everyday snack. What do you think we're going to see as the future of traditional candy as there is more and more focus on the public health aspects that we were talking about before and keeping candy and, and sugar and all of these things away from kids and dealing with it in the context of the obesity epidemic we're always hearing about? Well, I, I, one thing that I've seen that causes me some dismay is the reformulating of candies to be, quote, better for you. And the idea that somehow if you take candy and add some vitamins and some fiber and even maybe change the name to snack bar or fruit snack or something like that, that uh, you can somehow um, rescue candy and make it a nutritious food. And I think that bothers me for a couple of reasons. Um, number one is I don't think that, you know, adding uh, a sprinkling of vitamins or a spoonful of fiber really changes anything, and, I, you know, it's still ultra-processed food. Um, and second, I think that it, it really um, concedes the idea that candy is super bad and we should avoid it and we should eat real nutritious foods. It just tries to disguise candy as a real nutritious food. To me, it's really, I want candy to be candy. You know, I want to know when I'm eating candy that I'm eating an indulgent, not good for me treat. And when I eat food, I want to be eating food. I want to eat something that really is good for me and not, isn't just, you know, adding a spoonful of vitamins and calling itself energy food. So, I, you know, I feel like... Um, because we have this emphasis on the importance of everything we eat has to be good for you, it kind of has encouraged food marketers to, you know, redesign and repackage what are essentially treat foods and make them look like they're good for us. But I think it's better if we sort of have a good distinction and say that food is treat food and it's fine to eat as long as what we're mostly eating is good food. Samira Kawash, her book is Candy, A Century of Panic and Pleasure. Samira, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.